Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Happy Ramp Podcast. I am Ted Cluck, joined as always in studio by my good friends, my partner in radio, Barnabas Piper. Pipe, Ronson, Hilton Head, just doing what small town pastors do which is getting on that airplane every couple of weeks and going to have another retreat. Uh, I don't know, man. The, the boy's on a – he's on quite a pace. It might be unsustainable, Pipe. I don't know. Well, um, I, I feel like I might have forfeited the right to critique. I have to earn it back because he and I have alternated episodes. You, you, have, yeah. been, you have been the Cal Ripken, the, the Iron Man, <laughs> the Iron of, man. This, the, of this particular season of podcasting, and I have been yep. the – you know, he and I have been alternating, so um, I, I feel like I should probably reserve commentary on that until I earn the right back to poke fun again. That is that is very high character of you, Pipe. Uh, I, on the other hand, am a low character individual, and as aforementioned, I've been uh, Ted Cluck, Radio Iron Man, so uh, I will poke as much fun uh, as I possibly can. Oh, you, uh, yeah, you've you've banked all sorts of uh, poking fun capital. Like this is absolutely. this is well earned. It is well-earned. And uh, Piper, what I want to talk about this morning and what we want to talk about this morning is the concept of things being well-earned versus things just kind of being given. And we want to do it in the context of a movie that I just rewatched called Whiplash. And we'll do it all after this short break. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, Piper, back. So I just watched Whiplash again last night. Uh, I was under the impression that Tristan hadn't seen it, but he actually had seen it. Uh, but he was down to watch it again. So Whiplash, if you're not aware, uh, it was kind of the first Damien Chazelle movie. So Chazelle made La La Land, which he got massively famous for. Um, but But Whiplash came before it. Whiplash, I would argue, is by far the better movie. I'm not a La La Land guy at all. Um, but I love Whiplash. I think it's fascinating. And it, it, it kind of brings to the fore this discussion of hard coaching and kind of the thesis of the movie. The J.K. Simmons character is this like maniac who teaches uh, jazz at like a, a prestigious college in, in New York City. And he's abusive, right? He's a maniac. And he just tongue lashes these people and makes them you know, anxious and questioning themselves and and the whole thing. But there's this moment where the main character, who's the kid from Top Gun Maverick, whose name I always forget, dude. Who who Miles who Teller. Of? Miles Teller, thank you. I forget that like 
12 times a year on this podcast. But uh, Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons sitting at a bar. Simmons is kind of laying out his philosophy of teaching, and it's it's the following. He says the words good job are the two most damaging words in the English language. So the idea that if we just tell people good job when they don't do a good job, then we hold them back from becoming great or becoming what they could be. And my question to you, Pipe, as we think about education, as we think about our own kids, we have kids, I, my kids are 17 and 20 years old, respectively. And I can honestly say I don't want them to be coached abusively, but I do want them to be stretched and pushed and made to grow. And I don't want them to just be told good job all the time if they haven't done a good job. Um, I've been rambling for a while. What are your, what are your thoughts on any of this? Yeah, I, it's, it's not a zero sum game. So, you know, the premise of, you know, I don't, it's kind of like the old teaching. Uh, there's an old teaching uh, kind of a motto of like, don't smile till Christmas. Like you were the hard teacher and then you, <laughs> yeah. then you would like break out. And, and there's, a, there's an element of that that I go, okay, I understand the premise. However, there is a way that this is real problematic. So, you know, I have, I have two teenage kids as well, and there's this constant tension. And just like if you're, if you're a coach, I mean, in pastoring, it's the same thing where you see people on, on a, a trajectory of growth. Yeah. And you want to encourage them on that. You also don't want them to think they've arrived. Yeah. And so, you know, Simmons' character thinks that the word good job leads to complacency. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if I say good job, you will know you, you think you've arrived. Yeah. As opposed to like, this is wind in your sails, you know, good job and keep going. So, you know, my, mm -hmm. my older daughter is finishing up her junior year in high school. Uh, junior year is, is a kind of a kick in the pants for a lot of kids because it's, you uh -huh. know, school gets real tough. She, she was working a job, you know, trying to navigate balancing all these things. And the first part of the year, was bumpy on that front. And the second half of the year, she's made huge leaps. Also, she's still 17, which means I look at her and I go, you have so much room left to grow. Yeah. So where, do, where does good job come in versus like, you need, you need more kicks in the pants to continue to grow. Yes. That's, eh, that's a tough one. It's so tough, dude. And, and KK and I, we find ourselves just praying for wisdom often on that. Like when, when to encourage, when to lean into, you know, building them up and when to push them a little bit. And yeah, it's, it's an incredibly hard thing to navigate. Um, and every time I watch Whiplash, I think I've seen it three times now, I find myself kind of in the following headspace. I don't hate the J.K. Simmons character. Whereas I think a lot of people watch it, like my wife, I think watches it and she hates the J.K. Simmons character. She's just got, she's like, this guy's a lunatic. It's it's bad. It's terrible. But you know, growing up the way we grew up and when we grew up, and especially in football culture, that was the norm. Like some crazed middle aged guy, like tongue lashing you and having a, a vein pop out of his forehead, and like that was sort of. I'm not going to say it happened every week, but it happened more often than it didn't. And so I think for me, there's a comfort level with that, even though I don't coach that way, right? So like for me, and especially my writing program, I'm quick to tell people good job, but I'm slow to tell people that was magical. You know, we, we kind of use this word magical to to describe writing that is next level and rare and unique. And there's just something about a piece, whether it's a feature, like a voicey opinion piece that, that hits at a level of magic. 
and I'm slow to give that. Um, but I, I think in general, I'm quick to encourage and I want people to know that they're growing, you know, and I want people to know that, that like progress is happening because I think that's important in the psyche of a person, you know, you're not telling yeah. them, Hey, you've arrived, but you're telling them you're, you're on the journey, you know, you're, you're climbing up the mountain and it's admirable and I hope you keep climbing, you know, when, um, yeah, it, this varies so much depending on, like you're talking about you're talking about artistry, you know, writing mm -hmm. and, and there, there's a very personal aspect to that. So what is good for one writer would be bad for another writer in the sense yeah. of, uh, their starting points weren't the same. You probably have kids who come into your classes who are already pretty accomplished or gifted writers. And then you have kids yeah. come, who come in and they're like, they, they couldn't piece together a five paragraph essay. If you paid them a thousand dollars. Yeah. Good is not the same for each of them. And progress isn't the same for each of them. Yeah. Whereas like football is different because it's you personalize football and it gets weird because this whole it's it's a mechanized thing. It has to work as a yes. unit. So it, there there is a sense in which if 10 out of the 11 players do exactly what they're supposed to and one guy blows his assignment, it's not good. Right. And so you can't go but but you also can't go around and go you did good, you did good, you did good, you did you suck. You did good, you yeah. did good, you gave it just has to be run it again. Not good yeah. enough. And, and yeah. so there's, there's an objectivity aspect to this as well, which, uh, and, and a corporate aspect, which is another thing that we societally today really dislike. We don't, we don't want to bear the brunt of criticism for somebody else's mistake, even though we are part of the same unit they are. Oh, that's fascinating. Talk more about that. Like, how do you think we got there in terms of, and maybe it's just our ragingly individualistic culture, but... Um, yeah, it, in, in decades past, I would say there was a, there was almost the expectation that you would bear that brunt, you know, and, and maybe it's just growing up in team culture and getting tongue lashings as a, as a team. But why, why do you think it is that we're less willing to do that now? I mean, I think, I think team culture, especially like sports teams or military teams, you know, where the mm -hmm. stakes are really, really high are yeah. the only place I can think of where, um, where where the objective is so clear that this still makes sense you know so it it you know if you're on a team you have to be a profoundly selfish person to shrug and go i did my job when yeah. when your whole team fails you're like i did my assignment instead right. of realizing unless we all do our assignments this yeah. this thing doesn't work unless we all play our part you know, if you're on a marketing team at a business or, or you're an accountant or whatever, you don't look at the whole business and go, if we all do our parts, you just, all you think about is my personal performance, my opportunities at advancement, even the people within your business become, um, but potential competitors of yours or, yes. or yeah. uh, obstacles. Yep. Um, it, we, we've moved more and more towards individualistic dreams um, yeah. rather than being part of something. Mm. And no, I think people still innately want to be part of something, but there's not a, a um, conceptual and even societal framework to go, yeah, this is how that works. So yeah. it's, you know, in, in the business world, you know, I have a couple of friends who run smaller, mid-sized businesses and it's they have to work really hard to try to create a context where the performance of the team benefits the whole. Yeah. And then within that to to individualize uh, performance assessment and go, OK, the whole team 
we beat our business goal by 8% or whatever, you, you were the laggard. And so right. how do you, how do you, you know, and that's just a constant push and pull. But I think generally speaking, we, we are so uh, individual dream and accomplishment focused that we just lose sight of feeling a sense of accomplishment because the whole organization or team or whatever uh, is, is, uh, is doing well. Yeah. You know, that's, that's interesting. And again, I think if you grew up playing team sports, especially like hard ones, um, I, I remember very distinctly a sense that if we played bad on Friday night, we were all going to suffer in films on Monday, you know, like film was going to be miserable. Right. <laughs> yes. And it, and it, and it was, and there was a sense of like, we're all suffering together. So like, even if I played good and we lost, I knew film was still going to be miserable. I knew we were going to run extra sprints. So there was this collective sense of we suffer together. But then the flip side was, and you remember this from when you played, like winning together and specifically in a football context, winning together is maybe the best feeling that there is. You know, like the the locker room after a win is, mm -hmm. gosh, dang, dude, it's just such a joyful place and it's so fun. And there's a sense of we all suffered together, but then we all did this together. And I think guys who play or even guys who are in the military, like that's what they miss. You know, uh, you miss coming to the end of a hard thing and then celebrating it together. In real life, you know, whether it's sales, whether it's a university. So in the university context, I see this too. So I would say there's great cohesion and a, and a sense of team within like my department and there are a handful of faculty there. So maybe five, six faculty in the department. We all feel really close to each other and like we want to see the department succeed. But like university wide, that's not there. Um, and they try to manufacture it. You know, they try to do the the whole collective rah-rah thing once a month or whatever. But but it's it's not real, you know, and, and I don't know how you would develop that. But we'd probably be better institutionally if we did develop it, you know? I mean, maybe, but I think the kind of institution, I mean, realistically, what does it look like for you to invest deeply in the math department? Like, right. Do yeah. you have nothing to offer? That's right. Yeah. I, <laughs> and, I, I and, truly and have your, nothing to offer. Yeah. And that's not an insult to you. It's, you know, mm. we're, we're, and, and so I think universities are a little different because, I mean, you think about like, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of the, uh, like the UK university system, but they have colleges mm. within the universities. And so you know, if you're, if you go to Oxford or Cambridge, like you don't go to Oxford or Cambridge, Yeah, you go to whatever college as part of that. And so there's these units within the whole that maybe specialize in different things. You know, there's a, you know, the focus more on literature or philosophy or mathematics or whatever. And, uh, and I, departments in the university are like that. And, you know, the bigger the business and the more diversified it is, the more it's like that. So if, if you work yeah. at 3M, you know, yeah. you know, the whole of 3M matters to you in the sense of if the company does badly, you might get laid off. But like if, if you yeah. work in the office supplies department, you know, you're designing yeah. new tape dispensers. You don't really care what they're doing in. Uh, I don't even know what else 3M does, like the Band-Aid department. You know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Fine. Exactly. Good job, guys. Go get it. But uh, it, it's so so there's a the, the corporate aspect of it is a, is a lot less. I mean, it's yeah. not really corporate other than somebody at the top is making money off of all of this. Dude, it's so wild you mentioned 3M. So the the tiny little town that I grew up in, we had a 3M plant 
in our town and they made tape. They made like scotch tape. And I just have these vague, like kind of hazy memories of like half the grown men in our town worked at 3M. And, you know, they would get together, they'd talk about life at the plant. And, you know, it was just sort of in the ether in our town. And and if you went to the outskirts and like drove through a certain section, you would see the big 3M plant and you'd be like, wow, like that. If that ever goes under, like our town is dead. And yeah. our town is even more dead than it than it currently <laughs> is, you know. And it's funny, and you're right. Like I, I don't know that like the Hartford City three implant felt a strong connection to like the Minneapolis home office or whatever. But um, yeah, there was a sense of it kind of rising and falling together. Pipe, let's take a break, and then I've got a a spiritual thing that I want to talk about vis a vis Whiplash. We'll be right back. All right, so. I'm watching this movie for the second or third time and I'm watching pipe these scenes where, and this is just a function of maturity in the faith, hopefully, or a a softer heart where I'm going, man, they get so close to repentance and both parties needed to do it right. Both parties needed to sit across the table from each other and apologize for some specific things and specific ways that they hurt each other. And in true sort of adult life in a fallen world fashion, they get close and they kind of do the, the adult apology where they're like, well, I mean, you know, uh, I didn't mean to hurt anybody with my approach, but you know, I understand it's not for everybody. And it's like, gosh, dang, you get, you got close, you know, you, you almost got there. And I found myself watching it going, if real repentance were to happen in the scene and grace were to be extended, like this relationship could be magical, right? And this scenario could be unbelievable. My question to you, Pipe, is have you had that experience with movies? And we're watching these movies that are made by pagans, by and large, you know, un- unsaved people. And yet eh, there's still proof in the movie that the person who made it is created in God's image because they get close to like true repentance and forgiveness. Do you have thoughts on that? uh yeah i think that's one of the like i it's not it's a rare story that kind of sucks me in emotionally it has to be Mm -hmm. either it has to hit me at just the right time or be just particularly rich and poignant and not having seen whiplash i can't speak to that particular one but those moments are always the ones that make me feel the most in my sort of like the tension in my gut yes where if you just say this Mm-hmm. It will resolve this whole thing. And and so that the lack of saying it becomes a plot point where it's like, oh, the person didn't just admit to lying or cheating yeah. or whatever. They didn't just come out and say, I blew it. I'm sorry. And so mm-hmm. then there's this ongoing tension for another 60 minutes of the movie or, you know, 30 chapters of a book. Yeah. And and at the human level. At the at the story level, I'm like, yeah, they needed that. <laughs> Otherwise, the whole story comes to an end, and there's big hugs, and you're like, it's a oh, short film. I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah they uh, <laughs> they went from they didn't like each other to falling in love in 27 minutes. That's not much of a that's not much of a story, but yeah. uh, but at the human level, yeah, there's that sense of of man, you were so close, you were so mm. close, and at, you know, thinking of the of the spiritual aspect of it, it just is so evident. 
there's you mentioned the the image of God where they get close, but also it's such evidence of the fallenness of humanity in that they can't. Yeah. They yes. All they can see is the cost of being honest as opposed to the freedom of being honest. Um, yeah. They can only see the risk of being vulnerable as opposed to the benefit of of kind of laying it out there and going, here's how I blew it. Here's yeah. Here's how you know. I just want you to know how I feel about you yeah. or whatever the case may be. And, uh, and so there's, and you go, oh yeah, that, that only happens when the Holy Spirit develops humility in you, or you have such a, he, he, he's lifted your eyes to the come, come what, what, you know, whatever pain there might be, it's still yeah. a benefit. It's still right. Yeah. It's still good on the other side of this. There's freedom in it. And, uh, and they just can't. Right. Yeah. It's so it is foolishness to the world, right? Like the idea of sitting across the table from somebody who you've really hurt and saying, I, I know what I did was wrong. Please forgive me. Um, yeah. The idea of either of those characters in the world building of the movie doing that, it seems ludicrous, but, but yet it was what I was rooting for, even though I'd seen it before and I knew it wouldn't happen, you know? Um, and, and so, yeah, you you just root for it in real life, you know, and and it's a is it, a, a, yeah go. The crazy thing about about this is though you you know in real life it's the exact same in that when you're watching somebody else's life you go if you would just if you yeah. would just sit down and speak humbly and openly and you know maybe it's a young guy who really likes uh, a young woman and you're like just go tell her how you feel. And he's like, I could yeah. never. You're like, well, good luck then. Yeah. You know, well, she's supposed to puzzle this out on her own. And uh, yeah. you just go speak freely. Or if it's reconciliation that needs to happen. When you're on the outside looking in, you you yearn for it and you see the mm -hmm. benefit. You're like, I can see the end of this. And, and yeah. I, but, you know, the cost is not that high and, yeah. the, uh, and the benefits are great. And even if it doesn't yeah. go the way you want, it's still not going to hurt you that bad. When you're in it it feels impossible, you know, yes. you know, you've been married for what, 20, what, how many years? 20 something, 27 years, 27 man. years. And I bet it is still not very easy for you to go to KK when you have blown it and be like, I am so sorry. I was wrong. Let me just devour this crow that is in front of me. <laughs> yeah. After 27 is, years of practice, it's still not easy. That is a true statement. Yeah. It's a true statement. And, and yet, by God's grace, and this is where it's just it's just so good to walk with the Lord, it is getting easier. You know, I, I can look at the totality of the 26 years and go, it's easier today than it was 15 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago. And that's, that's the Lord. You yeah. know, there's nothing in my character that makes that get better, you know, apart from the Lord. And, and that's a good thing. And so... I, this becomes interesting for us as like Christians who tell stories, right? And it's been a while since I've read Peace Like a River or novels like that. So I don't remember a ton of specifics about it, to be honest. But is this kind of storytelling happening at a high level where we see it in something and we're drawn to it and we go, yes, that's Christian, um, but the story's still good. Can you think of examples of that? The the ones like that I'm I... trying to think of like if I had made Whiplash, yeah, how would it have been different? You know, 
Um, can you think of any? The ones that I can think of are aimed more like young adult, young reader. So Interesting. there's an author named KB Hoyle who has written, she's written a number of, of kind of like, I'd say late elementary through kind of high school level books. Um, yeah. And, and the same tension exists, you know, young, but, but it's, but you kind of, you get it because these are immature, you know, 13, yeah. 15 year olds she's writing about, but, but they get to the place of being honest, of learning to trust of this, you know, these, this character development a lot faster than adults do. And, yeah. uh, and it, and it, there's a palpable physical sense of relief when you read it. Mm. And then, so, so on top of that, though, like these are, these are really good stories about, you know, kind of, it's kind of a fantastic world building kind of thing, you know, alter, alternate universe, kind of yeah. Narnia esque, but not Narnia. Um, yeah. n- not stepping on C.S. Lewis's toes. Uh, yeah. So, so, and I, I'm trying to remember, I can't remember the name of the, the I think it's the, called the Gateway Chronicles. Um, mm. so, so she's done it. I think Andrew Peterson did it in his, uh, wing feather saga. There's some of that, um, yeah. ND Wilson in some of his young adult fiction. Adults don't do this very well. Adults, huh. adult authors in the Christian space, either lean into like saccharine sweetness yeah. or fallen condition. Uh-huh. And and don't tend to kind of weave that tension. Now, granted, it's really hard to do. And so I'm, I'm not yeah. trying to throw too many yeah. stones here as a non-story sure. writer myself. I'm yeah. not familiar with too many where you go, that is profoundly Christian. Um, that 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 builds up the, the appropriate sort of tension and disgust at the fallenness. Yeah. And then also the relief and benefit of, of repentance, reconciliation, honesty, etc., yeah, no, it's fascinating to think about. And as you've been talking, I've been trying to think of examples of it. And I even think of a movie like Hoosiers, right? Which is a feel-good, nostalgic Indiana basketball. So the Hackman character is kind of this broken guy. When you meet him in the movie, you learn that he's been kind of exiled from college basketball for some you know, indiscretions or, or sins that don't really get specifically named, but but he was too mean, essentially, or he hit a player or something like that. And short of, like, repenting of it and dealing with it, like, that movie is really an exercise in him trying to do enough good to counteract the bad that he's done, right? So he he takes on these projects, like Shooter, and he's like, I'm going to give this alcoholic, you know, dad a chance to clean himself up and have a moment and... It's really secular in that, you yeah. know, it's it's secular in its approach to uh, atoning for sins. Even a movie like Die Hard, right, which is like an all-time favorite. It's a Rushmore movie for me. You know, John McClane and his wife are estranged in the first act. You get the sense that he's he's been a jerk. He hasn't been supportive. And he never deals with it, right? He does save her life, and he does save... Everybody in the Nakatomi building, except for Ellis, you know, and and Mr. Takagi, but he he never actually says I'm I'm sorry for being a terrible husband, you know, <laughs> right. and uh, it's it's re- it's really funny that way, and you know they hug and they kiss after, you know he he saves the building and saves her, but yeah you you don't get a sense that it's gonna last real long, you know, yeah, and it's <laughs> it's the world's approach to atonement. 
So I, I can think of one story where a secular story where this is handled really well, but in the spirit of honesty and uh, and you know appropriate Christian confrontation, um, I think we should take our third break. And I have to tell you, uh, I listened to the clip from the last episode where you kind of <laughs> poked poked at uh, at our at uh-huh. our at our media overlords on this, and yeah. the confrontation comes in that we have a third party editor who has to drop in the ad breaks. Okay. And he pointed me to this and said, this is really funny. Also, it's really annoying that I constantly have to drop in the third ad break because Ted doesn't put it in. And uh, uh, he doesn't work for our media overlords. So oh, man. This, is, this is me coming to you with a, with a uh, hopefully gentle confrontation oh, yeah. and saying, let's be nice to, our, to Chris, our editor, who does good work on our behalf and is, and is not attached to the media overlords. Shout out Chris. I want to I want to do a thing for Chris right now. Um I want to be the JK Simmons figure in the in the analogy and Chris will be the Miles Teller character and instead of coming to the table and defending myself, I want to say, "Chris, I'm sorry. Uh I should probably even apologize to our media overlords. I'm not sure I can get there yet, but uh I definitely Chris, am sorry that I've made your life harder for not dropping in the ad breaks." And Pipe, let's take a break. We'll be back. All right, we're back. Um, that felt good, dude. It felt good to unburden myself. Of, and and of being that. friends with Chris, I can assure you that despite the fact that you may never speak to him, he is, uh, uh, he is a very kind and forgiving person. He also thought your previous comments were very funny. So uh, he, <laughs> yeah. he, he, is, he will be quick to, uh, quick to reconcile. Don't worry. Well, Chris, I appreciate it. Friend of the program. Hopefully friend of me in real life at some point. And uh, I forget what we were even going to talk about after the uh, third. I, I thought of one story that lives in the secular realm that does the repentance thing really well. Ooh, um, what is the, it? it? It's Mighty Ducks. Oh, fascinating. Talk about it. So, you know, the original Mighty Ducks, which came out in 92, 93, you know, was was filmed in my hometown. There are lots of yeah. scenes and places where I used to ride my bike and stuff. So I have a deep affinity for this. I also know the movie inside and out. Um, Gordon Bombay, played by Emilio Estevez, is a uh, a former, I think he was a former minor league hockey player, never made it to the NHL because um, yeah. he, he got injured. And he gets a DUI and uh, and is forced to to go coach this this terrible inner city hockey team in Minneapolis. Yeah. And he's a total jerk and yeah. and blows it and he tries to turn them into the Hawks, which is the evil good team from Edina, yeah. which if you know anything about Minneapolis, that's uh that is the yep. wealthy suburb just southwest of Minneapolis uh yep. which is, you know, that the way that they portrayed in the movie is exactly how I felt about Edina growing up. Let's just put it that way. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, it was spot on. They really got that part. He there's a scene in the movie where he comes into the locker room. He's totally blown it. He's called these kids losers. They've overheard it. They're they're just pissed at him. They yeah. basically, you know, he comes in and they they won't play for him and they're like, "Well, you think we're losers, coach? Why would we?" And he just lays it out there basically and is like, "I'm sorry. I was wrong. I've been a jerk. We haven't wow. had any fun. Uh, let's do better." And and they they come to the place of forgiveness. They rebound, and I'm not going to spoil the movie, despite the fact that it's 30 years old. And yeah. uh, and so that's the one scene I can think of 
where somebody who has been in the wrong doesn't just say, man, we can, we can, we can come back from this, but rather just lays it out there. And he's like, you don't have to play for me. I have been a jerk. I wouldn't want to play yeah. for me and owns his mistakes. And it, and it leads to genuine reconciliation. Yes, dude, I have one for this and it's beautiful. And if you haven't watched it, you should watch it. I, I don't know if your wife would be into it or your kids. Even the movie is warrior. And it stars Tom Hardy, uh, the British guy with the huge traps, although he uh -huh. plays an American kid in the in the movie, Nick Nolte. And oh, he's, a, he's like a cage fighter, right? Yes, yes. It's a cage fighting movie, which I'm not into cage fighting, dude. Despite being super into boxing, I'm not a cage fighting guy. I never have been. But this is a movie about family brokenness and reconciliation in as much as all three of those parties. So... Dad, the Nick Nolte character, was abusive alcoholic, you know, a maniac, not there for his family, not there for his wife. Um, the wife dies and the, and the sons just end up estranged from their father. And they're both dealing with it in different ways. So the Tom Hardy character, whose name is Tommy in the movie, really violent, really mean, says nasty things. And the Joel Edgerton character, they're, they're all cage. They're both cage fighters. He deals with it just by being sort of cold and aloof and like, I'm going to punish you with my silence, right? Like my distance and not letting you see my kids and really visit with me is going to be the thing that punishes you. So they're both trying to punish their father. And Nolte's character is so broken, but so specific in the way that he repents. It's beautiful, man. Like a Christian had to have written it. Uh, cause it, it gets to me and the, the way that the writer weaves all their stories together at the end and causes them to each break in their own way. And they each extend grace to their father and to each other. It's remarkable. Um, I, it, I never, a Christian never or somebody who's been through Alcoholics Anonymous. That's true. And yeah, I, and I don't that. mean that in the, in the, in a flippant way at all, but sure. so, so I have, you know, in our church, you know, we have people who, who you know who who have overcome alcoholism or or various other substance abuse issues, and have talked about some of the, you know the twelve step programs, and mm -hmm. the how close those are to a biblical process of repentance. I mean, it is mm -hmm. as close as the world gets, yeah. minus the Holy Spirit. Which means yeah. that if somebody is a believer and going through there, they have they have sort of the key to unlock the heart of the thing. But yes, people who have gone through that, like they get they can get a little manic about it. It sort of becomes yeah. the, the key to solving the world kind of thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. But also, they are, man, are they Christian adjacent. It's so close. Mm -hmm. And you'll even see this in characters in movies where, you, you know, like sponsors and stuff. And you'll be like, that yeah. That guy's better than a priest. You know, priests yeah. are usually portrayed really badly. The sponsors, yes, they're, they're almost Christian. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And... I think a Christian must have written it because even the way the brothers reconcile with each other, there's something really tender about it, you know? And, and Tommy's character is the hardest, the Tom Hardy character. And he has to kind of literally be broken. But when he finally breaks, it's incredibly joyful. Like it's a picture of like my own heart being, you know, uh, heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh right and whenever i see it i'm like gosh i i lived that and um i don't know it's really cool not a lot of people have seen the movie 
it's just a good movie too. Like the storytelling is really good. The pace is perfect. It's it's well, a I, fun one. I love Tom Hardy too. I'm kind of surprised I haven't seen it. I think I didn't see it because I I avoid all cage fighting. I do not enjoy yeah. it. It's yeah. The, I, I have the same relationship with it for sure. Why do you not enjoy it? I, just out of curiosity, I don't know if we've ever had this talk. So boxing feels like two people saying we are we are agreeing to kind of uh, structured combat. Yes. And yeah. so, like, it can be brutal, but there's sort of a, a shape to it. There's yeah. Whereas cage fighting just feels like what you're anticipating at any moment is the most grotesque thing you've ever seen, and yeah. that and and so it feels much more gladiatorial, and mm-hmm. which is which feels subhuman to me, and yeah. and I realize, look, I it, I I'm going to offend some listeners because I know that there's there's technique and there's style and it's come a long way. And we're not talking about like the old, the old, like actual cage fights where, where there were no rules and it was, it was terrible, but the brutality of it is just such that I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't enjoy watching that. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm with you a hundred percent. And I've tried to enjoy it, you know, like when it was reaching its apex in popularity and like every 30 year old dude was talking about it. I, I really tried, but I just could never, I could never enjoy it. But I, I enjoy almost any boxing match, even if it's a four rounder between guys who aren't that good. Like I, I really enjoy boxing and I really respect it. And I really, I see the artistry in it and there's something in it with boxing too, that I think is just, it's tied to history. You know, you can think about, you know, whether you're into Muhammad Ali or Joe Frazier or Sugar Ray Leonard, or yeah. I don't know, you know, uh, Jack Dempsey or whatever. Like there's a, there's a historic kind of ballast. A lot, lot of a lot of Jack Dempsey fans rolling around out there, dude. Shout out Jack Dempsey. I mean, there. I'm sure we have tons of Dempsey fans in our listenership, but uh, but yeah, Warrior. Despite being a cage fighting movie, that really does capture the crassness of what you just said. Um, it does some really tender things and uh, some really Christian things. Pipe. We have done 36 minutes of Christian things this morning, mostly <laughs> apart from my ongoing beef with our, our media overlords, but I'm glad I patched things up with Chris, dude, that feels really good. That's a big step. Um, so pipe, we've done what we always do on this program. And until next time. We want to take a moment to thank the team at Life Audio for partnering with us on this podcast. Be sure to go to lifeaudio.com and take a look at the other podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Hey there, it's Carly Mercoulier, host of Therapy and Theology, a weekly podcast that explores popular topics and questions related to faith, feelings, and spiritual formation. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.